Hello, hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of Skeptics and Seekers Sunday Sermon. This is 4S. I'm David Johnson. Let's get started. And uh, today uh, we have Dr. <clears throat> oh, somebody. Am I a bad person for not even bothering to remember his name? It doesn't matter. Some Christian academic making his best argument for the existence of God. I thought I would put this in because over on Red Letters for the last two weeks, I have made a case for mythicism. It's a great couple of shows. You should really go over there and check it out. It's absolutely free for those who pay a dollar per episode. <laughs> Is that confusing? <laughs> so it's an audio podcast, uh, not a video podcast yet. Uh, and so if you would like to hear me make a strong case for things having to do with Jesus, but not have to see all this, it'll cost you a dollar per episode. Is that a better pitch? Patreon.com slash red letters, patreon.com slash red letters, where we discuss all things Jesus. Go on over there, grab a free copy of uh, my uh, book, and uh, let's have a chat. Uh, we, we do this roughly every week, uh, except for the weeks that I don't do it. And uh, you don't pay for those weeks because you only pay for shows that I actually do, and you don't even pay for all of those. When I do supplementals and extra shows, uh, you don't pay for those. You only pay one time per week and sometimes not even that patreon.com slash red letters enough of the commercial uh i am starting this podcast uh this this show from the beginning of the recording where the speaker is introduced not just normally i would skip this i thought about skipping it this time and jumping right into the uh the meat of the lecture but i wanted you to hear this long list of accolades. It's a very impressive list of accolades. And if you kind of fall into the fallacy of authority, <laughs> and I, I think it's almost always a, a fallacy. <laughs> uh, but if, if you are the kind of person who is very impressed by academia, and you think, well, you know, this person, he's got all of these academic accomplishments. So he must really know what he's talking about. He couldn't possibly be wrong. Well, okay, we're gonna we're gonna see how wrong he could possibly be. I haven't heard this entire um, recording, and so some of it will be new to me. And uh, he's giving his best argument for the existence of God. We will have many stoppages and comments. Here we go. He also previously did, uh, or briefly did. Postgraduate study. Dr. Peter Kraft is a professor of philosophy at Boston College and the King's College. He is the author of numerous books on philosophy, theology, and apologetics, as well as a much sought after lecturer and debater. Dr. Kraft went to Calvin College and received his master's degree and PhD at Fordham. He also previously did, uh, or briefly did, postgraduate studies at Yale University. Dr. Crave joined the philosophy faculty of Boston College in 1965. His intellectual reputation steps, uh, stems from his strengths in debating and summarizing the philosophical arguments of the major Western philosophers, 
He has debated several academics and issues related to God's existence. Shortly after he began teaching at Boston College, he was challenged to a debate on the existence of God between himself and Paul Brines, an atheist and a history professor, which was attended by a majority of the undergraduate students. Crape later used many of the arguments in this debate to create the Handbook of Christian Apologetics with his then undergraduate student, Ronald Ticelli. Dr. Kraft has received several honors for achievements in philosophical reasoning, including the Woodrow Wilson Fellowship, the Yale Sterling Fellowship, the Newman Alumni Scholarship, the Danforth Asian Religions Fellowship, and the Weathersfield Homeland Foundation Fellowship. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Peter Kraft. Well, with so many intellectual and academic accomplishments, this guy couldn't possibly be wrong. The original title I was given was Supernatural Matters, and then I was told to focus on the existence of God, because that's obviously the primary supernatural matter. But a general point first, the, the master heresy in our culture <clears throat> and in our time, which many of the popes have called modernism, is naturalism. Naturalism means there is no such thing as the supernatural, there is only nature, that is, the universe. Carl Sagan, for instance, defines the cosmos as all that ever was, is, or will be. That cultural assumption of naturalism infects uh, a lot of elements of our religion. Uh, you've probably heard people say, yes, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. I believe in a God, but God is simply all the good in everybody. And yes, I believe in miracles, but every sunset and every baby is a miracle. And yes, I believe in the Bible, but it's just useful myths. And I believe in angels, but they're just uh, uh, good human beings. And I believe in sin, but that's just inappropriate behavior. Uh, and the fear of the Lord is not the beginning of wisdom. It's a terrible thing. Well, that gives you another religion. That's not Christianity. That's humanism. That's self-worship. That's the devil's religion. Okay. So already I begin to question your intellect because you have brought up the devil, which is one of the biggest problems for, for Christians out there. But, you know, you're talking to a room full of Christians. They just accept this stuff, uh, you know, out of hand. They just, sure, of course there's a devil. And, uh, you know, if you're a humanist, then you're practicing the devil's religion. That's not a good start. Uh, those who enter hell sing the anthem of that religion, I did it my way. Okay, and now we are entering hell as if it were a place. Haven't, haven't we been lectured a lot around here about how hell is not an actual place? <laughs> Those that sing heaven, uh, enter heaven, sing God's way is the best way. Those are two very different religions. Well, what's the origin of naturalism? Why is it so popular, even among so-called religious people? 
Well, one very obvious answer is prestige. It's the establishment religion in our secular culture. It's still not that fashionable to be an aggressive atheist, but it's also unfashionable to be uh, a, an, an aggressive theist. So something nice and wishy-washy in the middle. Uh, a religion where God is like a book on the shelf and on a beautiful day when you want him, you can take him down. Uh, but when he's uncomfortable, you just put him back. But that just raises another question. If the main motive why religious people water down their religion to a, a naturalistic religion, why is that prestigious in the first place? Why is our culture naturalistic? And the answer that's usually given is uh, to be scientifically respectable, the so-called war between science and religion, which is supposed to be the main reason for the decline of religion throughout the last three or four centuries in the history of Western civilization. Uh, I announce to you the uh, astonishing truth that there is no such thing. The war between science and religion has no more reality than Santa Claus. It does not exist. And if people tell you that science has disproved religion, please ask them which discovery of which science made when, uh, with which proof, uh, logically disproves the doctrine of which religion. And they'll never be able to answer it they will never be able to answer it because the question is so convoluted. I think we can simplify it a little bit by, by, by maybe restating the question, are there some aspects of a traditional religion that have been placed in doubt or debunked by science? The answer would be yes. But of course, then he could just turn around and say, well, that, that wasn't, a part of any religion that I'm thinking about anyway. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it gets worse. It's, it's just a vague climate of opinion. Uh, there has never been throughout the history of the world, a single doctrine of our religion that has ever been refuted by any scientific discovery whatsoever. What? <laughs> I mean, wow, what a, um, what an incredible claim. That's amazing because our religion is vulnerable to scientific disproof. It's not just a series of, of platitudes which can't be disproved like Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Uh, if the bones of the dead Jesus were discovered in some tomb in Israel tomorrow, Christianity would be definitively refuted. Okay. All right, his, his credibility just dropped at least 20% with that clunker. Um, you hear Christians saying this sort of thing a lot, you know, people like Sean McDowell and such. They, they say this sort of thing. You know, if, if the bones of Jesus were found, it would be refuted. Now, I don't know uh, about the decay of bones, so I don't know how long it takes for bones to decay. So would, would Jesus' bones still even be there uh, would be one question I have. And let's just assume the answer is yes to that. Jesus' bones would still be there. Where would we look? Which, <clears throat> which tomb? Because we don't know where he was supposedly laid. We have no idea. So exactly how do we find these bones which might actually be there? And let's say we did 
find some bones that we're pretty sure was the tomb where Jesus was laid, not that we could ever prove that. How do we identify them as Jesus? Did Jesus leave some uh, DNA that, you know, maybe we can match to the bones? You know, this is the definitive Jesus DNA right here. And this is the DNA that we found on the bones. How, how, would, how exactly would we go about identifying those as Jesus' bones? Right. This is the kind of thing that Christians say when they want to sound credible and they say things like, oh, no, uh, our religion is falsifiable. If you find the bones of Jesus, then, then we're doomed. You can't find the bones of Jesus. There are no bones marked. Uh, here I am. I'm Jesus. Can't do it. So here, I'm just going to move this micro microphone back a little bit. <laughs> so, I'm still getting used to this one. Um, forgive any uh, audio issues. I'm uh, I'm working with a new mic. It's a good mic. Don't blame uh, any problems on the mic. I'm an idiot. Um, I, I will get used to the placement of it and that sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, this is the kind of thing where Christians just want to look credible and they're being either purposely dishonest or they're idiots. And they assume that they're talking to idiots because the people in the room eat this stuff up as if it made sense, as if it were a good argument. Oh, yeah, yeah, they just have to find the bones of Jesus. Shut up. Blown away. Nothing like that has ever happened. There is a second reason in our culture, I think, which is even stronger for the decline of religion. And that's not just due to something new in our culture, that's due to something perennial in human nature, namely uh, the desire to be God, the desire to be on your own, the desire to be free, the desire uh, not to knuckle under any higher uh, power. Okay, so the desire to be on your own and free and not enslaved to someone equals the desire to be God? Really? Really? Because, you see, I want my freedom true. However, I don't want to enslave anyone else to my whims. I, I would think that simply desiring to be free is just the desire to be free. For this gentleman, the desire to be free is the desire to be God. And that would make God the only free being. And that's why it's not so much in theology, but in ethics, that uh, dissent or rebellion exists, especially in sexual ethics. Uh, the rest of morality is still fairly well in place in Western civilization, but if it has anything to do with sex, it's a sort of anything goes. That chaos, like any heresy, is always addressed by the church. The church always has an answer to the different wounds that the patients come to it with because the church is a hospital. And John Paul II's theology of the body, if you don't know it, is something you absolutely must know in order to give the, the true big picture uh, of sex and sexual morality. But let's do what you're uh, expecting me to do. Uh, let's look at just how <clears throat> faith and reason are, as John Paul II famously said, uh, two wings of the same bird. 
and how the church speaks two languages, the language of faith and the language of reason. And to the world, the church speaks the language of reason. So what are the rational arguments for the reality of the supernatural? When people speak of the supernatural, they usually think of spectacular things like miracles, life after death, heaven and hell, uh, the authority of the church, the infallibility of scripture, uh, and maybe most deeply of all, uh, whether God is really in charge of our lives, divine providence. Can God solve even the problem of evil? Uh, those are all consequences of the naturalism versus supernaturalism issue. For instance, if there is no God, then the closest thing you get to God is yourself, and you're in charge of your life, and you're doing a pretty lousy job of it, let's be frank. What? Well, first of all, I, I disagree with the premise, Mr. Intellect, that if there is no God, then the closest thing to a God would be you. Actually, the closest thing to a God might be some really powerful alien with godlike powers. Okay, so it's not a dichotomy of choices where uh, it's either God or us. Just philosophically, that that doesn't really work. And then I forgot the other thing you said, which was equally ridiculous. So let's move on. Uh, I love the book of Job, especially because of one word. Uh, Job is sitting on a dung heap. You know what dung means? It's the S word. Uh, and it happens. And life is full of it. That's in the New Testament, too, by the way. One of my favorite verses. It's very funny. Uh, it's in Philippians. Paul goes through all of his worldly, prestigious uh, pluses. He's a Pharisee. The Pharisees, as to the law, blameless. He's a Roman citizen. He's educated by Gamaliel, the greatest of rabbis. All of this, compared with knowing Jesus Christ, he says, is skubala. Most of our politically correct Bible translations translate that as, as refuse or garbage. It's the S word. What is the matter with these uptight humans? Just say shit. It's shit. Okay? It's, it's not the S word. You don't have to say you're grown-ass adults. Just say shit. <clears throat> and the great question of human life is, can you trust God with that? Is there a God who knows so much more than you do that if he were to appear and speak to you as he did to Job, the best thing he could possibly say was the two things he said to St. Catherine in a mystical vision. He said, you only need to know two things. And all of divine revelation is about these two things. And if you fully understand these two things, you understand it all. This is all that I'm trying to get across throughout the Bible. Number one, I am God. Number two, you're not. <laughs> we keep forgetting that second thing. Well, those are all the practical payoffs of the existence of God. But is it reasonable to believe that there is a God? Eminently so. There are scads and scads of arguments for the existence of God. There's only one good argument against the existence of God, and that's the problem of evil. But there are dozens of arguments for the existence of God. 
let me divide them into four categories. The first category is, I think, a weak argument which doesn't convince anybody, but it's very clever. It's traditionally called the ontological argument, first formulated by St. Anselm in the 12th century. And it goes something like this. The definition of God, whether he exists or not, is the being with all conceivable perfections. But to really exist outside the mind is more perfect than to exist only as a myth inside the mind. Therefore, by definition, God must exist. Instinctively, we know there's a fallacy there somewhere, although it's very hard logically to find it. So let's just skip that argument. Okay, thank you for a little bit of intellectual in integrity here. It's a shit argument, or should I say the other S word, scoop. And talk about a second class of probable arguments or inductive arguments. Arguments from, from facts that strongly point to the existence of God, but don't conclusively prove it. By the way, most arguments are like that. Most of what we think we know, we know with probability. For instance, you're not absolutely certain that I'm not a homicidal maniac about to pull out a pistol and kill you. Having watched this video, I'm still not absolutely certain of that. But it's very improbable, so you took a chance in coming here. <laughs> One of these probable arguments has been called the argument from common consent. Uh, it's estimated that somewhere between 95% and 99% of all the human beings who have ever lived on this planet in all times, places, cultures, and religions have believed in some sort of superhuman higher power or God by uh, uh, a very broad definition. So if there is no God, then 99% of all human beings are insane. They're like Jimmy Stewart in that old movie Harvey. Harvey is a 13-foot-high invisible rabbit that only Jimmy Stewart can see, and he's the most important person in Jimmy Stewart's life. And in every other way, Jimmy is a normal, nice guy, but he strongly believes in Harvey. Well, he's nuts. Well, God's even bigger than Harvey and more important than Harvey. So if there's no God, then only the atheists are sane among us. I mean, that's a big leap. Even I don't make that argument. Well, I don't make it anymore. It's been a long time since I've made an argument like that. Um, that's just not true. That's straw manning uh, the atheist position. Most atheists, pretty much all of them that I personally know and have listened to. So there may be some atheist out there who believes that believing in God makes you insane. But most of us don't believe that at all. Uh, in fact, <clears throat> most of us, uh, I, I would gather, most of us have been believers at one point. And we don't think that we were insane. Excuse me, a little crud in my throat. We have loved ones uh, in our lives right now who are Christians. And the, the Christianity of the people that we know and care about uh, range the entire spectrum, the, the entire spectrum, right? So, um, You know, they're, they're conservatives, they're middle of the road, they're progressives. We don't think they're insane. In fact, I think that believing in God is a completely rational thing. Now, I, I think that the reasons are not good, but I do believe there are reasons. And I think that someone who falls for it isn't insane or crazy for falling for it. They have a problem with epistemology and they need to work on that, 
but that doesn't make them crazy. Just because you believe something that's wrong, we all believe wrong things right now. That doesn't make you crazy. So I, I just, I reject this straw man attack on the atheist position. This is, this is a position held by uh, no atheists that I know, and I'm guessing practically no atheists uh, whatsoever. Now, maybe there's no conclusive proof that that's not so, but you've got to be awfully arrogant to believe it. No, you don't. Okay, just because I don't believe it, it doesn't require arrogance to believe it. There, there are situations where almost all people could be insane or crazy. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying that that's not possible. I just don't think believing in God is the thing that would qualify people as being insane. And so what he's trying to do is bolster his argument by insulting the other side. And, and he's saying, if you think that I am wrong about this, then you must be arrogant. So the price you pay for disbelieving in God is uh, you, you can't join the rest of the human race. You have to look down on them as idiots. Okay. Uh, one other point about this, and I will let this proceed to the next point. So there, was, uh, there are two books. Uh, I've read them both. One of them is The Wisdom of the Crowds, and it was by a, uh, an economist whose name I cannot recall. And it was, I think, a response to another book called the foolishness of crowds it was certainly a response to the idea that you know people are smart but crowds are stupid um so christians what do you believe here because this is a little bit confusing the argument he's making is that everybody believes this and everybody can't be wrong this is kind of an argument that craig keener makes in his big book of miracles, you know, lots and lots and lots of people believe that they have experienced a miracle or have seen a miracle. And just the fact that so many people believe it means that that's a good argument for miracles. All these people can't be wrong. So Christians, on the one hand, if, if people believe in God, then all these people can't be wrong. But then if I say the majority of people who believe in God aren't Christians, then you say, yeah, well, you know, the crowd is stupid. <laughs> why, why are you following the crowd? Which is it? That's quite a price. A second probable argument is a very famous one. Probably you've heard it, Pascal's Wager. It's addressed to skeptics who aren't sure whether God exists or not. Well, if you're not certain, you might have to wager. So let's see what you can gain and what you can lose. If God exists and you bet for him, you can gain everything. And if you bet against him, you can lose everything. But if God doesn't exist, you can't gain or lose anything because there's no God and no heaven to, to gain or lose. So your only chance of winning is to believe and your only chance of losing is to disbelieve. That's very crass and selfish and crude and it's not truly religious faith, but it might scare the atheist off his butt. Okay. So it's not a good argument and it's crass and, and yet you, and yet you bring it up <laughs> in a, in a show that is supposed to be about your best arguments for the existence of God. Why are you even bringing this scuba up? Okay. Uh, because 
you know, and everyone else knows that Pascal's wager is a terrible argument. All you've got to do is think of it in the following terms. Uh, okay. But what if, uh, there was a God of a different religion, then you're equally, then the wager is equally bad for Christians because you've gone all in on Christianity and maybe what you should be is a Jew or a Muslim. And so you're still facing the same odds all the time. There's no way to beat the odds with Pascal's wager. But of course, you know that because you couldn't possibly be an idiot because you got all those degrees and accolades. God's not going to be satisfied with that. That's not a very high motive for religious faith, a kind of eternal fire insurance policy. But still, it's something. No, it's not. A third probable argument is all the miracles in human history. If with an open mind, you go through history and look at miracles. Sorry, if with an open mind, this is just kind of a backhanded way of saying you atheists don't have an open mind. If you, uh, if you, if you take, take a trip, trip to uh, Mexico, Mexico City and, and examine the tilma of one Diego, Diego. Uh, if, if you, you go, go to, uh, to Italy once every, every five years, years and watch, watch the blood, blood of St. January is miraculously liquefied in the public square, uh, if, if you, you go, go to Lourdes, Lourdes and interview people who have been miraculously healed, healed there, uh, you'll, you'll at least be discombobulated if you're atheist. How do you explain them? Wait a minute. Do you actually believe that these are legitimate things that you're talking about right now? Uh, do you go to Lords every year and bring, you know, someone who's sick or crippled or an amputee and have them healed there? Really? No, you don't. Shut the fuck up. Well, if you don't want to believe, you can explain them in some other way. Jesus himself says in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, even if someone were to rise from the dead, they still wouldn't believe because they don't want to. That's also an ad hoc. But... If you're open-minded, that's powerful evidence. Right. So if you don't believe in God, you don't believe in these miracles, the only possible explanation is not that these miracles are bogus. It's because you are not open-minded. A fourth piece of evidence is the history of the Catholic Church. There has been no other institution in history that has been so consistent and so uh, pure in its teaching. The Catholic Church is consistent and pure in its teaching over history? Really? Despite the fact of radical impurity uh, among its people. Uh, Napoleon kidnapped the Pope, brought him to France and said, we will destroy your church. And the Pope said, if we Italians haven't been able to destroy it for 19 centuries, you're not gonna do it either. <laughs> That's a good argument. <laughs> Look what we've endured. A fifth probable argument is the effects that religious belief produce in people's lives. Psychoanalysts, psychiatrists, who are some of the most secular and atheist people in any profession, routinely recommend religious belief to their patients because they see that it makes them happy, well-integrated, uh, full of hope and purpose. Uh, it works. Well, if it makes you holy and happy, but it's false, 
then the human heart, the human spirit, which is what psychoanalysts are supposed to be investigating, is torn apart in opposite directions. And that couldn't possibly be the case. But first of all, where are the studies or the research that shows that psychologists routinely recommend religion for their patients? Can you, does anyone have that? Because I've never seen that. So if someone wants to put a link in the comments, um, that's the kind of thing that a Christian lecturer can just say in front of a Christian audience, and they will just nod along and say, yes, yes, that must be the case, because he knows what he's talking about. Look at all those degrees he has. R really? Psychoanalysts, which religion do they recommend? Are they, is it just any religious, any old religious belief? Is that what he's touting? That any religious belief is better than no religious belief? Because that's actually not a plus for Christianity. It's, it's a negative. Christianity is just one in many false beliefs that just has, happens to have uh, a positive result. Second, I question the idea of whether uh, being religious makes you happier or more fulfilled. Now, I, I agree that it does for some people, but it, I would also argue that it might turn some people into serial killers. Just look at the jails, look at the prisons. This is a statistic that you can look up. <laughs> Most of the people in jail, uh, especially those who claim to be religious, are Christians. They're Christians. And you know what else? They did it. The two best things in your life, goodness and truth, lead you in opposite directions. That's quite a price to pay. Uh, and look at all the saints. Uh, are they the stupidest people in the world? Does being really good make you really stupid? Okay, this kind of emotional, polemical uh, appeal, this is just bad sophistry. All right, this is not an argument for anything. It's an argument to try to make you ashamed to be an atheist, all right? And it might work for some people. Oh, the, all the good people are religious. This is kind of the, the statement. So if you're good, then you're obviously religious, and if you're religious, you're crazy, and is, is that what you're trying to say? Those things do not connect at all. And, you know, you call someone a saint to kind of demarcate them from good people who are not religious. But let me just turn the question around and say, what about all of the good people who are not believers. Are you saying that all of them are stupid? Look at Jesus Christ. No one ever had more faith than he. Uh, is he the stupidest person who ever lived? Quite possibly. That's quite a price to pay. Honest atheists like Camus. Excuse me. Honest atheists, once again, I just, I just want you to feel how loaded all of this is. Just throwing in that term, honest atheist, and then he names someone that, you know, you've never heard of, but someone who might agree with uh, one of his positions. Now, that's an honest atheist. All you other people fucking lie. Uh, worry about that. Uh, one of my favorite atheist characters in literature is Dr. Rue in his novel, The Plague. 
He's an atheist, but he risks his life to save thousands of people from the plague because he knows that the meaning of life is to be a saint. But he can't figure out how you can possibly be a saint with no God, and he doesn't believe there's God. Right. Um, I'm going to let you guys just comment on this. You can't, you can't be a saint without there being a God, but the connection is you can't be a good person who is ethical without there being a God. Because, yeah, you don't have to call yourself a saint to be a good person. And he's conflating the idea of goodness and sainthood being the same. If you're a good person, then you must be a saint, but you can't be a good person slash saint without God. I'm beginning to question the providence of some of these degrees, he asked. And he never solved that dilemma, and neither did Camus. Uh, you got to admire his honesty. Uh, honest atheists are unhappy. What? <laughs> I'm sorry. I really want to let this go for a while, but I can't. I can't stop hitting the button for some reason. Honest atheists are unhappy. So, uh, I'm sorry. Dishonest atheists are happy. It makes a big difference. Jesus didn't say, by the way, that all atheists go to hell and all theists go to heaven. He said, all who seek, find. All who honestly seek the truth will find it. If not in this life, then in the next. So if you don't have the truth, you're obviously not honest. Well, a third class of arguments for the existence of God are much more familiar. Also, all, does that mean that all honest Christians are happy? If there's a Christian who's unhappy that they're dishonest Christian? Uh, especially if you've studied Thomas Aquinas. Clearly, none of these academic achievements touched on, you know, basic philosophy. They're called cosmological arguments, arguments from the cosmos. Arguments are classified by where they start, where their data come from, where their premises come from. And the most certain premises come from our experience, because all our knowledge begins with experience, especially with sense experience. You can't deny, for instance, that things move, that things change. So his first, and he thinks most certain argument, is the argument from that fact. Things move, well, so what? Well, if there's no first mover, no unmoved mover, no first cause, then there can't be second causes or third causes or fourth causes or any number, even if it's an infinite number. Because motion or change is a one-way thing. If A changes B, that doesn't mean at the same time B changes A. If domino A pushes domino B down, that doesn't mean that domino B at the same time pushes domino A down, the opposite. Well, we see that there is uh, a incredibly complex chain of interacting dominoes, so to speak, in the universe. So there must be a first. And the first, by definition, is not something that's dependent on something before it, because there is nothing before it. So this intuitively looks uh, like a very good argument. There must be some sort of first cause. That's that, so I must have an incorrect or faulty intuition because first calls arguments do nothing for me. It, it feels like you simply abandon your argument 
where it's convenient to abandon it. So you say that everything has to have a prior cause. Okay. Let's, let's grant that. I'm not entirely sure that's the case, but let's, uh, let's go ahead and grant that. Um, and uh, I, I will allow my ignorance to go ahead and grant that. So everything that happens, that moves, has to have a cause. If that is the case, there can be no first cause. There, I mean, just philosophically think about that for a moment. Everything that happens has a cause. And what you're saying is everything has a cause except the first cause, but you're just being arbitrary now in deciding what's the first cause. It's the thing that you don't want to regress any further back. And so you have to posit, well, there is at least one exception to this rule that I'm trying to make. The first cause doesn't have to have a cause. Everything else has to have a cause, but the first cause doesn't have to have a cause. Doesn't the second part of that, the first cause doesn't have to have a cause, negate the main argument that everything has to have a cause? Doesn't it? What am I missing? What am I... I don't have all those. It's not, of course, all that you mean by God. That's a very thin slice of God, but it's enough to refute the atheist. A second argument expands the data from change to existence. Things exist. And things give existence to other things. For instance, your parents are responsible for the fact that you exist in the world. So existence is passed down the chain from causes to effects throughout history. Well, you can't give what you don't have. Suppose I said, uh, I'll give you a book that will be so clear that you'll understand all the mysteries of Catholic theology in 10 minutes. And you would say, please give me that book. And I say, well, I don't have it. I have to borrow it from my wife. Well, does she have it? No, she has to borrow it from the library. Does the library have it? No, it has to get it from interlibrary loan. Well, can interlibrary loan get it? Well, they have to borrow it from, well, does anybody have it? Well, no, nobody has it. Well, then nobody's going to get it. Well, existence is like that book. If we get it, if it's passed down the chain, then somebody must have it to begin with. But a being that simply has existence and doesn't get it is an eternal being, and that's God. There's no other candidate. A third argument is the argument from contingency. Everything can cease to exist. Nothing has to be. We're all great might not have beens. Uh, well, if everything is contingent, what, on what is it contingent? If everything can die, and there's no God, and no act of creation, and therefore uh, the universe is eternal, there's been enough time for everything to die. How come it's still there? Wait, wait, wait. There's been enough time for everything that exists to have died. Is this a scientific statement? There, there's been enough to... So, are, it sounds like he's saying that there should be nothing left, no universe, no particles, no nothing, because since their beginning, there's been enough time for them to have died. And so because the universe hasn't died yet, God must exist and be the one that's keeping it alive. Is that what he's saying? Oh, my scuba. That's a 
a more abstract argument. No, it's not an abstract argument, sir. It's buttfuck stupid. A fourth one, the argument from degrees of perfection, uh, assumes something that most philosophers today deny, but most commonsensical people uh, believe, namely that when we make value judgments, we're talking sense, not nonsense, and we're talking about objective truth, not just subjective feelings, that human beings really are more perfect than oysters. If you don't believe that, please don't invite me to your house because you're either a cannibal or a vegetarian. Uh, <laughs> If one thing is really more perfect than another, there must be an absolute standard by which you judge that. Uh, do you have any resident Catholics out there? Do Catholics actually believe that? that or resident philosophers, human beings are more perfect than oysters. He's suggesting, I think, that human beings are the most perfect thing of all. Well, human beings might have more intellect. They're certainly bigger than oysters, but that doesn't mean that we're not flawed, and that would not imply that oysters aren't perfect for what they are. So how do, you, how do you, in fact, come to the conclusion that human beings are more perfect than oysters? I don't, for instance, have that intuition. Now, I also don't eat oysters. I'm not a vegetarian. I just don't like oysters. <laughs> shrimp. I will, I will do a plate of shrimp in in rapid order and ask for more. Uh, three is a higher number than two because it's closer to infinity. No, it's no, no. Okay, he's about to go into a whole series of these. I should reserve my comment for when he's done. But three is a higher number than two because it is a higher number than two. It's, it's not because it's closer to some other number. Uh, here, let, I'll be back. No finite number is infinity, but that standard must be valid in order to be used. Maybe nobody will get 100 on my test, but 99 is higher than 98 because it's closer to 100. No, it's not. What the hell? It could be, for instance, a situation where 99 is the highest possible number you could achieve. 99 is higher than 98, not because it's closer to some unachievable higher number. It's greater than 98 because it's greater than 98. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's why because if you have 99 things and 99 uh, 98 things there's one more thing in the pile of 99 than there is 98 that's why it's higher it's not higher because it's closer to some idea of perfection or infinity or anything. what the, what the hell so on the assumption that our value judgments at least sometimes are objectively true the degrees of perfection that exist in the universe mean that there must be some absolute standard, some most perfect being. I would say that this is the worst argument I've ever heard, but I've heard uh, more of this lecture. And that's one of the definitions of God. 
The fifth argument is the most popular of all. You find this in all primitive cultures. It's called the argument from design or from order in nature. Uh, we couldn't design anything as remotely perfect as nature. And yeah, it's, it's almost impossible to design, I'll say, cancer or viruses or... And the more science discovers nature and its laws, the more uh, amazingly intelligent design we see there. The concept of design is not something that hard science can define or verify. You can't quantify it. So I don't think this is a scientific proof for the existence of God, but it's certainly a good philosophical proof for the existence of God, because obviously nature is not random merely, and when it is random, it's designed randomness, like a roulette wheel. Okay. Obviously? When, when I hear a term like that, uh, he's just asking you to shut off your brain. I mean, obviously, intuitively, for me, I mean, you would have to be an idiot to disagree with what I say next. That's... Mm. So the order in nature pretty clearly and immediately uh, bespeaks some sort of a mind. Think of the human brain, the most complex piece of matter we know in the universe. It enables you to think. Excuse me, the human brain is the most complex matter we know in the universe? Uh, okay, I'm trying to steel man this a little bit and I'm... I'm still not sure uh, I follow exactly what it is he's trying to say. The human brain is definitely complex, but so are entangled particles. Uh, that blows my mind, but maybe he hasn't gotten that far in his physics book. It's very much like a supercomputer. If, when I was flying here yesterday, uh, I heard a public address system say over the airplane, uh, the pilot and the co-pilot have just died, but don't worry, uh, nothing to worry about because the plane is on autopilot and the autopilot has been programmed by a computer, which in turn has been programmed by uh, a random fall of hailstones on the keyboard left out in a football field overnight. I would, I would, I would, of course, lie back in my seat uh, and, and, uh, and smile and say everything's going to be all right, right? Of course not. <laughs> of course not. Computers work only because there's an intelligent mind that programs them. Well, our brain is like a computer. And if there's nothing but random chance and blind, unintelligent forces of natural selection that programmed our brains to come into existence, why do we trust them for anything? including science and talking about brains. A fourth and most interesting class of arguments could be called psychological arguments. All our experience is two-polled. That is, there's a subject and an object. There's an experiencer and an experienced thing. There's a, a knower and a known. Uh, and the modern mind is much more interested in the subjective, the psychological, than the ancient mind was. Probably because we're teenagers now. Little, little kids say, what's that, what's that, what's that? But teenagers say, who am I? Do people love me? Do I have zits? What's the meaning of my life? Shall I commit suicide? Am I ugly? Well, that's us. It's a natural development. It's neither good nor bad. 
So it's these arguments that intrigue us the most. Uh, one of them is the fact that we have minds at all, that what exists in human experience is not just matter, but also mind, reason, human reason. We can know a lot about the universe. We can do science. It's spectacularly successful. We're rightly proud of it. But science always expresses itself, or tries to express itself, in universal formulas, like force equals mass times acceleration, or energy equals uh, mass times the speed of light squared. So we can know universal truths about nature. Well, that proves that reason transcends nature, because the knowledge of something can't be one of the parts of that something. If I know this microphone, I'm not an atom in the microphone. I'm something over and above the microphone. Knowledge is not a thing. It's not an invisible particle. It's not uh, some undefined substance. It's, it's thoughts and ideas, and thoughts and ideas are things that brains do. Okay, it's, it's, it's things that brains do. As I wave my hand across the camera, across my face, the waving itself is connected to my hand. It's not a separate thing. It, it, and you can say, yeah, but the, the, the visual of your hand waving and the, the aspect of wavingness is not the same as your hand, so that must be a different thing. Now, waving is just what my hand does. It, this is the same kind of fallacy uh, that the argument from numbers has. Oh, well, numbers are a thing. Numbers are not things. Numbers are mere relationships between things. It, it's, it's a relationship. This thing is one compared to those things which are more than one. And depending on how much more than one they are, they are two or three. Or It's a description of things or a way of talking about the relationship between things. They are not some metaphysical substance, nor or ideas or logic or reason. But I can know something about all of nature. Therefore, there's something that transcends nature, at least when people know nature by reason. So at least materialistic naturalism is overcome no. by that argument. No, Even though that doesn't prove a god, it opens the door to a god. No, it doesn't. Some of the truths that we know are not just temporal, but eternal. Necessary. Two plus two equals four in any possible universe. How can there be eternal truths unless there's an eternal mind? Aren't we reading the mind of God when we know that two and two are four? No. Weren't you listening, you goddamn fool? Two is not a substance. Four is not a substance. These are relationships to things not some metaphysical substrate, you goddamn idiot. That everything is what it is and not what it isn't. That can't ever be changed. That's eternal. But our minds are not eternal. They keep changing. 
And our minds are not infallible. They keep making mistakes. But when we know that a thing is what it is, we know something that's eternal and unchangeable and infallible. It looks as if we're in touch with the divine mind. Much more interesting than these intellectual arguments are moral arguments. The moral argument for the existence of God is, is very simple. Dostoevsky put it this way, if God doesn't exist, everything is permissible. That is, if there is a moral law, which is truly moral, it's, it, it's not just something we made up like the rules of the game, because then you wouldn't feel guilty about changing the rules. Uh, you decide to play nine innings of baseball, uh, you're tired after six innings, so you go home without any feeling of guilt. But thou shalt not kill or thou shalt not steal are not like that. They're absolute commands, they're duties. They produce obligation in you. Well, if there's a, a real law, there must be a lawgiver. A law is an expression of a will. What lies behind a law, uh, if it impinges upon my will, is some other will. Well, what will could that be? Another fallible human will? That would not produce this infallible obligation. How, how did we determine that there was an infallible obligation? I guess it depends on how you define thou should not kill because the Bible is full of people killing people righteously. Uh, people who are Christians believe that there are many occasions when killing people is okay. Say, for instance, in self-defense where the lethal defense is uh, the only reasonable thing to do. Most of our laws agree with that. And so I don't, I don't actually understand what you're talking about when, when you talk about some infallible law that is, that is attached to some objective nature saying that we can't kill. Could you maybe tell me more or give me an example that is not so easily contradicted? The problem with this argument is moral relativism, uh, a, a genuine infection in our culture. Uh, Cardinal Newman, back in the 19th century, already dealt with the problem of moral relativism, which infects mainly intellectuals. Uh, we have a saying in academia, uh, that idea is so insane, you have to have two PhDs to believe it. Uh, Cardinal Newman uh, uh, amended the moral argument to appeal even to moral relativists who say there's no Ten Commandments, different strokes for different folks, the only thing that I have to worry about is being true to myself and my own private conscience. He said, well, uh, do you think it is ever morally right for anyone to deliberately disobey his own private conscience? To be hypocritical and insincere? No, no, that's the one absolute. Well, where does that come from? What gives conscience such authority? Okay, let me, um, let me pause here and try to have some serious discourse uh, on this one. Uh, so, first of all, I don't agree that uh, going against your own conscience is some kind of moral evil that is absolute. I think it's something that we should try to avoid doing. But as an avid Star Trek fan, and uh, Deep Space Nine is my Trek people. Eat it. Quark rules. Um, 
There was an episode where Captain Sisko was in a bit of a quandary. He was following along with some convoluted scheme of Garrick that he knew in his heart was going to end in, well, something really bad happening. He knew it, but he followed along with it because the greater good that he knew would come from it is, is actually the objective that he wanted. And yet his actions went against his conscience. He had this little monologue at the end of the episode, which resonated with me that the saving of millions of lives or more would be well worth the price of one man's conscience. So I, I do, in fact, believe that there are situations where your personal conscience should not be the highest authority. So j just dealing with the example that he gave there, I would say that you need to give a better example. Now, the example that Christians tend to give, you know, someone like uh, McDowell, uh, would be, do you think that killing babies for fun is wrong? All right, so first of all, you have to ask yourself, why would they go to such an extreme example like that? Because only a psychopath would think that that was okay. So why are, they, why are they going to this kind of extreme, this kind of example that does not exist in nature? Uh, and by nature, I mean perfectly mentally healthy people who, who believe that this is okay. That no one does. So why are we going with this kind of hyperbolic example? Why can't we use real examples and talk about real things? Well, the reason the Christian can't use real examples and talk about real things, oh, let's say abortion, is because the latest polls say that the majority of Christians think that abortion is okay. <laughs> so the, the, the moment they get into real examples of real things, homosexuality, whatever it is, the, the moment they get into real examples of real things, then they have a conflict within their own tribe. And that torpedoes their entire argument. So they have to use outlandish examples to try to make this point. And I would say, first of all, if your point requires some outlandish example that is, is not indicative of what happens in the real world, your argument is in serious trouble already. The, the fact that you had to, to go to killing babies for fun, torturing babies for fun. Okay. Um, the next problem, though, with this, this whole kind of moral argument is an appeal to emotion. You're trying to, you're trying to find something where you can get the atheist to agree with you on that this thing is wrong in all situations all the time, okay? So let's say you come up with something, torturing babies for fun, this, this is how far they have to go to come up with something, uh, that you can get both sides to say, well, okay, that seems wrong all the time. So you've got two people in agreement on that. Have we established that it's objectively wrong? Now, bear me out, because this is this is part of the Christian strategy to, to get you to question or deny that it's objectively wrong. And, and then they just win on the emotional 
appeal. You see, this guy must be a psychopath. That's, that's the entire point of this argument. And so it's, it's kind of trying to bully you into saying, well, okay, this thing is objectively wrong. No, you, you don't have to be bullied there. You can say, it seems like it's wrong to me. It seems like that would be wrong in all situations all the time. And I wouldn't want to live in a society uh, where people tortured babies for fun. I, you, can, you can say that without, um, without acknowledging any kind of objectivity. All you have accomplished there, and, and let's say that this is a universal thing among all mentally healthy people, that torturing babies for fun is wrong. That everybody, every mentally healthy person agrees with that. All you have discovered is one area where we have universal agreement. Universal agreement doesn't make it objectively true. We, we have universal agreement on a lot of things that are bad. You know, there was a time when maybe it was universally agreed upon in small villages that it was okay to, you know, capture and force women to be your wives. You know, and, and the, the wisdom of the day would have been, well, what's wrong with that? <laughs> you know, uh, we have some universal agreement uh, on that. All of the little uh, villages do it this way. So, I mean, why should we question that? Uh, you know, everyone in a village can can universally agree that tossing uh, babies in volcanoes is a good thing. Okay, well, that universal agreement doesn't suggest that it's right. So all you have done is emotionally bullied someone into, uh, you know, maybe assenting to universal agreement. That's not the stuff of objectivity, though, because we can all be wrong. And so part of this, this emotional appeal is to say, well, we all couldn't possibly be wrong. Yes, we could. So the better way to respond to this argument, uh, if this is ever presented to you, and I've done this many, many times, it has never failed. Maybe someone can uh, engage me in the comments now, and maybe it will fail. Let's find out. Um, please bring it on. But the better way to respond would be simply to say, yeah, I actually think that's wrong. And I know why I think it's wrong. And I can give you reasons why I think it's wrong. But Mr. Christian, we don't think the same way about morality. Why do you think it's wrong? Tell me, yeah, yeah torturing babies are fun. We, we both agree that that's the thing that mentally healthy people should not be doing. We think that's wrong. But we think it for different reasons. Why do you think it's wrong? This is a problem for the Christian. The Christian never wants to talk about why they think a thing is objectively wrong because then their choices narrow down very quickly. Well, it's wrong because it goes against God's nature. And tell me, Mr. Christian, what do you know about God's nature? Where did, where did you get this knowledge about God's nature? Well, I read it in this book. Anytime the answer devolves to, I read it in this book, they're done and they know it. So they will say anything and everything to keep from saying that. Where, what they will say is, well, my conscience tells me it's wrong. You know, let your conscience be your guide is a, an evil thing. It, it's, it's humanism. It's uh, the religion of Satan until it becomes the only place that the Christians can go for retreat. 
my conscience says it's wrong, and my conscience is ordered by the Holy Spirit. Right, except when your conscience tells you to do something that <laughs> is wrong, right? Um, so we all have a conscience. We all have some piece of the Holy Spirit, and it's telling us that it's wrong. Great, so then why do we have disagreements on other things? It's, you know, the, the moment they go to something like this, you know, how do you know the Holy Spirit works this way? Because it says so in a book, you're, you're done. It's done. It's over at that point. And so you don't have to be ashamed to think that there are some things that are uh, always wrong. And I, I will, I think it's trivially easy to tell an evolutionary story of why we would have evolved to think that torturing babies is maybe not conducive for our species. You know what we don't have a, a universal agreement over? You know, torturing ants. Because lots of little kids, and even bigger kids, like to cook ants to death under a magnifying glass. Because to them, it's funny and fun. It's great entertainment. I think that requires a bit of psychopathy, but it seems to be a part of the human animal that that's okay. And we, we have to be taught different. We have to learn our way out of it. And so, you know, we haven't evolved necessarily to think that torturing uh, small animals is wrong. I mean, that's a lot of people agree on it. It's not universal. <laughs> so, um, Christians, do you think that's wrong? Do you think that that's an objective wrong? Because how come so many consciences don't say that's wrong? It's just, it's a failed argument, no matter which way you turn. I just wanted to give you a little bit of insight about how I have dealt with this objection over time in writing, in debates. Uh, you can engage with people on the moral argument and be on very solid ground some of the, the, the things that I have talked about here in this little bit of discourse has, in my estimation, never been debated and never been particularly well challenged. <laughs> so uh, if someone would like to point out where I'm wrong and challenge me and embarrass me in the comments, please bring it on. Please. You're treating your conscience as if it's a, a prophet of Almighty God. If there's no God, why do that? If conscience is just the voice of society, why are you treating society as God? We're not treating it as God. You are treating it as God. We don't believe in a God. But we can say that conscience is a, a part of an evolutionary priority that we've developed. We can say that society is very important because we're social creatures and we want to live peaceably in society. That doesn't mean we're treating it as a God. You goddamn lying fool. If conscience is just what your parents want, why are you treating your parents as God? We're not treating our parents as God. Aren't you listening? <laughs> but you have to have some bit of respect for your parents and what they say because they're the one giving you your next meal, you goddamn fool. If conscience is just your animal instincts, why are you treating that as God? 
your animal instincts are not God, but they are, in fact, your animal instincts. A little bit hard to get away from the fundamental nature of what you are, you goddamn fool. If conscience is just what happened to evolve this way, why are you treating that as God? Asked and answered. That can be a dangerous argument because uh, it can produce the opposite result from what you want. Uh, if God does not exist, everything is permissible. Uh, it's assumed that you're sane enough to say not everything is permissible, therefore God exists. But you might say, you know, you're right. God does not exist and therefore everything is permissible. The hell with morality. You goddamn fool. So uh, you can also reverse uh, the consequences with your argument if all we're doing is being polemical. Uh, and I think that this is more realistic. The Christian could say that you should do things because God tells you to. And so when God tells you to kill your child for him, then you will do that. Right? I'll perform a conscienceectomy on myself. I mean, no one would possibly kill their kid for Jesus, right? So you got to watch out who you use that on. I was teaching ethics once at Boston College, and I had two very intelligent, strong, radical feminists. Let me just say, I, I know far more Christians, including my own father, who have been willing to say publicly and from pulpits that I would kill my own son if God told me to do it. I know of zero atheists who believe that everything is permissible in the front row and we were talking about abortion and I challenged them to give me a single argument that would justify abortion that would not also justify infanticide. Why do you suddenly get a right to life when the two blades of the obstetrician scissors meet when they cut the umbilical cord? And they tried to answer the question and I thought I refuted their answers pretty well and after class they came up to me and said, Professor, congratulations, we didn't think you could do it, you changed our minds, you're very rational. I said, oh, good, you're pro-life now? No, we're pro-infanticide. Very funny. This type of anecdote uh, is told by Christians all the time. They're lies. They never... I didn't think it was funny at the time. <laughs> We've talked about two psychological arguments from reason or the intellect and two from the will and morality. There's a third thing in the human soul that distinguishes us from the animals, uh, and that's the heart. Uh, there's an argument from beauty that I think is, is very impressive on modern people. In fact, in the Handbook of Christian Apologetics, I have 20 arguments for the existence of God, and I routinely ask students which is their favorite argument, and almost always the most popular one is the shortest one. There is the music of Bach, therefore there must be a God, period. End of story. What grade do you give students who give this answer? I think we're learning a lot about your overly vaunted academic and intellectual prowess here. You either see that or you don't. I personally know three ex-atheists who were converted by the music of Bach. I believe you are lying. Well, as I said, that, that's one you either see or you don't. But probably the most interesting argument of all is the argument made popular by C.S. Lewis. It's often called the argument from desire. If you look at the human heart, 
you find that it, it desires all sorts of things. And you can classify desires as either natural and innate and universal human desires that everybody has in all times and places and cultures, or artificial desires that are stimulated by advertising or things you see in your life but not in somebody else's life. For instance, there's the desire uh, for the Red Sox to win the World Series again, which exists in Boston but not Washington. There's a desire to go to the land of Oz, if you like the movie. A desire to fly through the air like Superman, if you've ever seen Superman. Those are not universal desires. They don't come from human nature. They come from outside. But there are a number of desires that everybody has. Hunger. We, we want food. Thirst. We want drink. Sexual desire. We want sexual happiness. Uh, we're lonely. We want friends. Uh, we're curious. We want knowledge. We want to see beauty, not ugliness. Uh, we want a good conscience, not a bad conscience. We want other people to love us, not hate us. Every human being who ever lived has those desires. All right, look at all the other natural desires, the ones I just mentioned, and one thing common to all of them is that they correspond to something real. If there is a hunger, there must be a food. Suppose you went to some other planet and you found that there were some beings there that were like robots. They didn't have carbon-based life forms, but they were constantly getting hungry for steak. But they had no stomachs that could digest steak. That would make no sense at all. Or you do know that there are people who hunger for milk, just as an example but cannot drink it because they can't digest milk, right? I'm trying to let this argument uh, go because we're, we're close to the end, as you can probably see on the film here, the little meter. I don't know if it's showing up in the video or not, but um, we're getting down to it. But this is, this might be the worst argument <laughs> I've ever heard. Um, I am familiar with this argument you know, if, if you desire something, then that something must exist. But that only works if the Christian will agree that it's an innate human desire and not some artificial desire. And so here the wheels fall off of the argument. They say that he says that flying like Superman is a desire, but it's not innate. I it seems like it. I don't know that I've ever met anyone who didn't fantasize about flying. You know, when I've talked to people about it, uh, they they think flying is a pretty good idea. <laughs> so I'm not I, I'm not sure that that's not innate. I don't know how you kind of divide up those categories of innate desire and artificial in uh, artificial desire. So that's that's one of the places where the argument falls apart. But even if you can claim that you've got an innate desire, you are still not making um, a case for objectivity, because we can make a very scientific case that homosexual desire is innate. But then the Christian would, would uh, inveigh against that. In fact, they would say that our sense of desire has been corrupted by sin. So I'm, I'm not sure 
how you're making this distinction between innate desires that's say not corrupted by sin and innate desires that are corrupted by sin. This argument just doesn't work on any level, but I mean, the real clunker of the argument is that if you desire it, and it's the kind of desire that he approves of in his hierarchy of desires, then that thing that you desire must exist. Let's hear him finish making that argument. Suppose these extraterrestrials were uh, monosexual beings, uh, a race of Romeos without Juliets, but they were constantly falling in love with non-existent Juliets. That would make no sense at all. So every one of these natural desires corresponds to something real. That's why it exists. Hunger means food. Now, if you examine your heart, if you're totally honest with yourself, you have to admit that you're unhappy. Nobody is totally, completely happy. You get little bits of happiness, and they're like appetizers, and you want the meal. But nobody's ever eaten the meal in this life. What we want is indescribable. If you call it God, you can't define that. If you call it heaven and you make pictures of heaven, they're silly pictures. Uh, write down a list of all the things you want to be in heaven and then imagine yourself getting them for all eternity. How long would it take for you to be bored? Not too long. So we can't understand our own hearts. We can't understand what we desire. Maybe heaven's a myth. Maybe we made it up. All right. But we want something eye has not seen and ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man. We all want that. Okay, so we want heaven, but he acknowledges that heaven might be a desire we have that's a myth. Doesn't that torpedo his argument? No, he just shifts it to saying, well, you might want heaven, but you don't know what you want. And so you, you just won't something that's undefinable and that's where he inserts a god if 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 we're totally honest we might think it's impossible it doesn't exist we can't ever get it but we'd like it we'd like there to be uh, a movie about heaven so fascinating that you want to see it over and over again forever never been such a movie never been an even even good one interestingly there have been interesting movies about hell but not about heaven Maybe that has something to do with the fact that we're better at uh, uh, imagining villains than heroes for most of our fiction. But in any case, we all, we all want something that's beyond our understanding. And that's an innate desire. Whenever we experience a, a, a tremendous joy, it always seems as if it's a pointing finger, pointing beyond itself, as if it's the, the smell of a food we haven't quite digested yet. All right, what does that mean? Well, put the two premises together. Every natural desire corresponds to a reality. Wrong. We have a natural desire for something that we call God. Wrong. Conclusion, God corresponds to a reality. Stupid. Doesn't mean you're going to get him. You might die of starvation, but it means that he exists. No, it doesn't. That argument not only, I think, proves the existence of God, but reorders our lives. This great man with a towering intellect and many academic achievements believes that that is proof that God exists.
and you wonder why I have so much disrespect for the very idea of Christian academia. Because our lives are really governed not primarily by our reason, maybe they should be, but by our hearts, by our desires. Our reason itself uh, is directed by our desire. Think about this. Why? Because it's interesting. Because I want to. Uh, desire is like the captain of the ship, and reason is like the navigator. And they should respect each other. The captain should listen to the navigator. But he has the power of saying, I don't want to, to listen to you. Uh, throw your charts overboard. So our, our hearts can be stupid, or they can be wise, but they're really the boss. So this is, in, in one sense, the, the primary argument from within, because the heart is, well, the heart, the primary organ. Okay. Um, are we just anthropomorphizing here? Because the heart, as you're describing, is not an organ at all. And yet Christians talk like this, the heart, and then they point to their chest. I don't know that it's just anthropomorphic here. I, I think there is some real confusion among Christians about what the human blood actually does. To get rid of this argument, the atheist has to say that, well, all the other desires do correspond to realities, but this big one doesn't. We don't say that. No atheist would say that. I've, I've never heard an atheist who says all of our, uh, corresponding, uh, our desires correspond with something in reality. Who believes that? In that case, life is something like the following very bad joke. You know, he's, I really get incensed when Christians do this. They're talking to a room full of Christians, and then they just misrepresent who atheists are and what they believe and how they think. And that just perpetuates misconceptions, misinformation about atheists and what they believe. Because the Christians take this uncritically, as if this man knows what he's talking about. Several times in, in this uh, discussion, he has misrepresented what atheists believe. And yet I suspect, you know, this room full of people just nod along thinking, yeah, well, I guess that's what atheists believe. I mean, this great man said so. A father was trying to teach his son life's most important lesson. And he said, son, what are you most afraid of? And the boy who was about five years old said, high places. So the father said, see that 10 foot high wall? Go climb up on that wall. Oh, daddy, I'm afraid. This is why you have to do it. Okay, now what? Now jump. Oh, I can't do that. Yes, you can. Why? I'll catch you. Promise? Yes. Promise? Yes. Okay, here I come. Oh, we, you caught me. Thank you, daddy. Can we go home now? No. One more time. 15 foot high wall. Daddy, I can't do it. Yes, you can. Remember the 10 foot high wall? I promise I'll catch you. Okay, here I come. Oh, thank you for catching me, daddy. Can we go home? No, one more time. 20 foot high wall. Can't do it, daddy. Yes, you can. Do you promise you'll catch me? Yes. Cross your heart and hope to die? Yes. Okay, here I come. We splat. Ah, daddy, why did you catch me? To teach you most, the most important lesson in human life, son. Never trust anybody, not even your father. Well, that's what life is like if there's no God and no heaven. Perhaps this is a new idea to him. Nature is red in tooth and claw, 
And in fact, there is no overarching, controlling, creating father in whom you can trust. Because God says, trust me in this. There's hunger, there's food. And it's true. And here's the biggest hunger of all. And there's no food for it. That's like somebody starving, walking into a restaurant where it advertises free food, and there's a whole bunch of appetizers, and each appetizer makes you more hungry for the main course, and now when the main course comes, it's nothing, it's empty. Well, in that case, naturalism isn't true, because the world is governed by a supreme intelligence that is diabolical. I'm sorry, the choices aren't there is either a good God or a bad God. Does anyone have any first year philosophy courses that they could send this guy? In other words, that argument proves that God is the devil. And if the food exists, then God is God. But in any case, there's got to be a God. He's either trustable or he's not. There's much too much design in every area of human life to believe there's no God. So the fundamental choice is not so much a choice whether you follow the argument or not uh, and, and end up with uh, uh, an absolute being. The fundamental choice is the nature of that absolute being. Can you trust him? Throughout the Bible, you don't find arguments for the existence of God. In fact, disbelief in the existence of God is mentioned only once in the Bible, in the Psalm that says, the fool has said in his heart there is no God. Well, learn your Bible, not true. Uh, first John, it doesn't. Of course there's a God. The big question is, can you trust him? It certainly doesn't look like you can. The world is full of scubala. <laughs> Why did Jesus Christ come? To show us two things, John Paul II says, the two most important things in human life, who we are and who God is. Jesus Christ showed us that God is infinite love and infinitely trustable. He came to feed us with his own body and blood. You can't be more loving than that. He came to feed us with his own body and blood. You can't be more loving than And then he showed us who we are. We're supposed to be little Christs. Well, those are the two supreme answers to the two supreme questions. Uh, the reason arguments for the existence of God are important is that they give for the atheist a reason to avoid those two questions. But once you've overcome that, once you've made theism a possibility, then the even bigger question arises. Do you trust him? Do you love him? Do you jump? And that's the fundamental question of human life. So please jump, please be a saint, please save the world. I'm so sorry. I am so sorry that after hours and hours and hours of searching for a good presentation on the existence of God, that I hand this to you instead. <laughs> Uh, so let me just acknowledge that along the way, I did find better presentations, uh, people who made better, more convincing arguments. But some of those 
presentations were so dense, so above my pay grade, I couldn't even be entirely sure of what they were saying. And so I, I didn't feel like I could com comment on it properly. I, I need to be sitting with someone listening to it alongside me so that I can say, wait a minute, okay, what is what exactly does it mean by that <laughs> kind of thing? So uh, arguments for God can be kind of like these, so stupid that even Christians face palm, or so uh, so high intellectually that no one can follow them. Some of the better uh, presentations I saw were very short, two, three minutes, 10 minutes, 12 minutes. Not the stuff of the show. I'd have to take several of them and put them together. I couldn't really find lots of them that I thought were good. <laughs> so uh, doing a show like this, you, you're just gonna have to choose um, presentations that kind of fit the format that you're doing and, and that are things that you can understand and that you can communicate to the audience and do the best you can. I, and I honestly believe that for the average Christian, this, these serve as good arguments. And for the more intellectual Christians, they still use some of these arguments, but they have try to put together better versions of these arguments so that they can't be as easily dismissed as, as I have done here. But at the end of the day, I find that these uh, types of speeches don't have any merit for uh, the main reason that they don't represent the reason why anyone believes in God. No one believes in God because of these reasons, right? This is, this isn't it. <laughs> no one believes in God because of the ontological argument. It, they don't. No one believes in God because of Pascal's uh, wager. No one believes in God because of cosmological arguments. They don't believe in God because of the moral arguments. And so these are things that Christians tell each other to give some post hoc rationalizations for why they're hanging on to Christianity. But no one goes to a youth conference, an unbeliever, and then gets a double dose of the moral argument and becomes a believer. That's not it. The reasons people become Christians, and so I've talked to thousands of, uh, of such people. This is one of the things that I was very interested in when I was a Christian. Why are you a Christian? Uh, why did you become a Christian? Um, the answers are the the real reasons are far more based than that, and I think I think in all of my personal research on this, I think that the truest reason why people are Christians is something that they can't even define. It it's beneath their ability to explain, because if you if you just sit with a Christian, you go through a presentation like you have today, and then you debunk, you know, one of these claims then they'll just move to another claim. Okay, but I thought you're a Christian because of this. Well, okay, then I'm a Christian because of this. They'll just move to another claim. And you can debunk them all, and they'll just keep moving to another claim. It, now, some of this is just dishonest argumentation, but I think that people really don't know uh, why they are believers. And, and uh, the other side is true. I think that a lot of people don't know why they stopped believing in God. It's hard to, uh, to say exactly when you stopped believing in God. 
you know, I, I try to answer the question. People, people ask me this question all the time and I just, uh, warn them. I preface the answer with, look, it's different every time. <laughs> so every time I answer this question, it's, it's a little bit different. I don't know when exactly the straw was laid that broke the camel's back. Uh, not sure. I think it's something more base than that. It just became something that you no longer believe. If you ask a 12-year-old why they no longer believe in Santa Claus, I don't think they could tell you. They don't know. At, at some point, it just stopped being believable to them. But why did it stop being believable to them? What changed? They don't know. So at the end of the day, the Christian is, is trying to present these things as reasons why you should believe in God, but none of these represent reasons why they believed in God. None of it. it. It's all just kind of post hoc rationalization that gives you some kind of weapons or tools to help you stay put and not follow your, dare I say, instinct and be honest with your, dare I say, conscience and move away from faith. And so the people who want to hold on to their faith, they often reach for these apologetic answers, much like I did. But because I was an honest seeker, I had to go beyond even these simple apologetic answers. And when they were debunked, to my mind, I had to follow my conscience to where it led, which is an acknowledgement that somewhere along the way, I have stopped believing in this myth. So we can debate these things, and I hope we do. It could be fun. It could be intellectually fulfilling or just entertaining. But at the end of the day, Christian apologetics doesn't convert anybody. In fact, I think the, the most that Christians can do with apologetics is maybe stop the bleeding a little bit. But I honestly believe that when we engage with Christian uh, apologetics, apologetics can be shown as a tool that deconverts Christians more than anything else. Because you, you have on the one hand, this person with all these degrees saying, these are reasons why you should believe. And then you have some idiot like me pointing out very obvious things as, uh, no, these are not reasons to believe. And so the Christian is left thinking, well, Dang, I don't really think I do have good reasons. <laughs> have I assessed any of these arguments incorrectly? Um, you let you tell me. Skeptics and seekers at gmail.com if you want to send me an email. You can comment on the board, skepticsandseekers.squarespace.com, and I will be happy to interact with you there. Or you can come to patreon.com slash red letters, where we talk all things Jesus. In the meantime, thank you very much. I've been David Johnson. This has been 4S, and we will see you next time.